0: To the latest edition of the city Wire ratings radar show I am joined as ever by my fund manager research analyst colleagues Frank Talbot and Nisha long and our director of international Angus foot slight change in format this year we are going to hone in each week on one particular fund manager and see what they're doing why they're so good uh, and I'm Take a bit of a deep dive there. So this week we're going to start with Martin Lau of First State Sentier, and Frank is going to tell us all about him.
1: Yeah, at this stage I'm sounding like a bit of a, a broken clock uh, when it comes when it comes to China. But uh, you know, just just a bit of background. Obviously, what's been going on in markets this year. Obviously, we've had the slide in US tech stocks um, and a little bit of a recovery, and that's obviously as a result of the fears around tightening. It's been the big story. But something that's gone largely unnoticed is how localised that uh, sell-off has been to the US market. In many ways, obviously, that's not wholly surprising. That's where the best performance has been for the past 10 plus years, US equities. Um, But even in the tech sector, you aren't getting the same atrophy that you're witnessing in the States as you are outside the States, particularly in China, uh, where its biggest players are proving much more resilient in the short term, the start of this year. Uh, In many ways, that's because... The sell-off is much longer in the tooth. There, I think this is the bigger bigger picture. You know, believe it or not, the MECI China, the index which which tracks predominantly internationally listed China stocks, uh, and has a heavy weighting to China tech stocks, is back below pre-pandemic levels. For some perspective on that number, you would need a forty-two percent crash in the Nasdaq 100 from its peak to get back to the pre-pandemic peak in February 2020. So that in itself t- tells you two things. Firstly, You know how hot the Nasdaq has got, and I think people have really woken up to that. And also how much value is present uh, in Chinese stocks. You know, there's obviously good reasons why people have been shunning China. Uh, It's down 36% since February last year, and that large part due to the uncertainty surrounding state intervention uh, of monopolistic strategies. Uh, But that doesn't stop the fact that you know Chinese and emerging market stocks have had a pull run now for more than 10 years. And the valuables are really talking up the prospects of these areas. It's a hot topic. It's a hot area. Um, so the manager I'm going to look at, as uh, Richard alluded to at the top, was is Martin Lau, um, first state double AA-rated Martin Lau. He manages, among others, the uh, FSSA China Growth Fund, Martin is one of the most consistently rated fund managers we've ever tracked. Since first becoming eligible in 2006, he's only missed two monthly ratings. Uh, And that is particularly impressive given the fact that he's named on 16 different funds in six different sectors. And they're all across the Pan-Asian region. Um, He's really schooled in that first-date mindset of investing in high-quality companies, high-quality growth companies, and in China at a time like this, when it's, it's a trickier market, that's hugely valuable. The 3.7 billion fund really proved its worth in the tricky 2021, falling just 6% to the index's 22%. Uh, that's not to say, you know, this is by any means a one trick pony. It does well when the market rallies, although not as well as some of the more speculative picks that you, you might find. Uh, I think when it really shines, to my mind, and you can see in the the history going back to 2002 when he started running it, is when markets are choppy. And given the news flow at the moment around China, it's hard to see, and globally with inflation, it's hard to see things not being choppy for the the foreseeable future. We are definitely in a big paradigm shift at the moment. So that's why it's sort of a fund that, that looks to me quite attractive.
0: As you say, there's a lot to be wary about in China. And this year, you know, growth is slowing, they're cutting interest rates, which is a nice contrast to the rest of the world. But, you know, how much is happening there? I mean, basically, they're, they're sort of in quasi-lockdown. They're pursuing zero COVID, which makes travelling in and out of the country almost impossible. Is this not going to affect the prospects for the sector of the whole? And how does Martin Lau cope with that?
1: I mean, I think if we're to believe the numbers, China's policy when it comes to COVID has been one of the most successful in the world, that zero tolerance approach in terms of limiting the outbreak, keeping it short and so sweet's the wrong word, but keeping it short so that it doesn't affect industries too much. And it's obviously localized, they're closing down particular parts of the country. You know, and, and obviously the bigger picture is, you know, longer term, not just the short term of COVID. It's that, you know, Lao believes that some of the regulation that's really affected share prices in this space, in the tech space, it has always been part of the contract for investing in China. OK, and it's it's almost to be expected, you know. Moreover, he believes that, you know, you talk, talked about interest rates going down, but he believes that China's state's approach to the economy is, is, has changed quite dramatically and that it was all about economic growth. And now it's becoming increasingly more socialist, you know, focusing on social stability uh, and equality. You know, hence that targeting of wealthy entrepreneurs and companies. Uh, moreover, you know, I think when it comes to like investment opportunities, yeah, industrials is a big part of, of where of where he's investing in and where he sees an area that possibly the government's eyes aren't on. Um, But broadly in the tech sector where people want to invest, he believes that innovation is not just limited to these large tech platforms that get the most press, that are the best known, you know, like your Meitwins, your Tencents, Alibabas. They are obviously the most vulnerable to state intervention. Um, but things like, as I said, manufacturing, sportswear, renewable energy, renewable energy where, where China leads the world in terms of companies market cap and development in, in renewable space. It's a big part of China's push to become the dominant country uh, in the next 50 years.
2: Well, I was going to say, I think it's a very interesting point wrapped up in that, because we do tend to talk about... I mean, obviously, everybody-
1: I'm glad you found it.
2: <laughs> everybody has... Um, everybody tends to have a home bias, right? Now, you know, when we talk about, we're based in the UK, when we talk about UK fund managers, uh, our debate is often about individual managers and their characteristics and styles and track records, et cetera, et cetera. When we talk about the US, we often talk about, you know, value versus growth, large cap versus small cap. It's about sectors, styles, the role of tech. When we talk about China, quite often we still talk about, should you be overweight China or not? We talk about it in this kind of generic, a uh, country context, and, and actually, to your last point, there, Frank, it, it's it's increasingly about what stocks you pick. It's not about should you be in China or should you be out of China, and their sort of domestic prosperity agenda, the policies that they're that they're implementing at the moment or pursuing at the moment. A lot of that, whilst we might looking from the outside we might feel that that has a negative effect on some of these big international players coming out of china or the would be international players because they're the victims of the regulatory clampdown what that means is that actually in an economy that is increasingly focused on domestic consumption domestic demand domestic prosperity it's a different type of company that will do well in China. Uh, And I I thought it'd be interesting actually, ahead of this call, I went through our super allocators report. So this is, uh, as as regular listeners will know, every quarter we talk to the investment heads at the world's biggest private banks, find out what they're allocating to over the coming quarter. And I just ran through uh, what they were saying about China in the last issue, which uh, came out just at the end of 2021. So there are things like, you know, somebody's talking about Julius Baer, for example, talking about uh, an increasingly bipolar world. And by bipolar, they mean Sino-American. You know, so China can offer diversification from uh, sort of a U.S. heavy portfolio. But then, you know, somebody else has been reducing the China exposure steadily on on the basis of Chinese policy, uh, redeploying h share proceeds to U.S. equities, Uh, again, around policy and earnings visibility. Uh, a number of big banks have been reducing exposure on the equity side, but uh, more interested in Chinese bonds. Um, so there's a, there's a mixed picture in terms of what the big allocators are doing. But, but one thing that does come through is increasingly, they are talking about this being a market that you look at bottom up. You know, you don't say, should I be in China or out of China? You say, what areas should I be uh, focusing on in China and increasingly that then comes down to which managers y- you want to support because you know they're they're in in certain sectors or stocks. Nisha, I think you wanted to make a point.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say yes, it has become bottom up, but I think it's also very much so the middle ground of sector level allocations as well that's going on out there. So what we've seen is with the property markets, as you know, we've seen what's happened in the high yield Area of, for example, Evergrande last year really hit the markets quite strongly. You have the tech regulations, which has also hit quite, you know, heavily. But I think that's that was a good thing that was has happened in China, and you know, people are coming back to China. If you look back at 2015, where we had the emerging market debt crisis, we had a crisis out there. But if we, China is a long term game, so if you're going in and out of these kind of stocks when it's hit very hard, you know. As I've said before, emerging markets is called an emerging market for a reason. Um, Long term players like the Martin Laos of this world, you know, have stuck that to their guns and stayed steadily, you know, invested in these regions and, you know, going overweight, underweight in specifics. Um, sectors of this. Uh, I just wanted to mention one thing about when you mentioned um, allocation shifting. Um, I have read somewhere that the Deutsche Bank AG has actually, from the private banking side, just last week upgraded its China A, A shares and H shares to going from um, to overweight. They were neutral before, so that just shows you that they're you know becoming bullish in this area, and that has been due to you know they. The tech regulation crackdowns and other regulatory ca- crackdowns which are happening out there, which are seen, you know, by some uh, private bankers as a positive for the country.
0: It's interesting. I've just pulled up Martin Lau's fact sheet for his China Growth Fund, and you know, one of the reasons he might have done so well last year is that real estate is only five and a half percent of his portfolio, very much down there, whereas I'm sure his rivals have suffered. And then his big names are Tencent, JD. dot com, a China dairy company. You know, all playing on playing on those themes, aren't uh, uh That we've heard so much about Frank. Uh, you know, the Chinese consumer—they're changing habits in terms of, of online and. Having a better diet, or uh, maybe dairy isn't a better diet, but a more varied diet. uh, Then you know, as they grow richer.
2: Yeah, just coming in on that, Richard. Going back to the super allocators, the of all the major private banks, the one that was most bullish about Chinese equities, Edmund de Rothschild. Um, They they say that the long-term high-quality growth drivers are still intact, which really feeds into what you were saying, Frank. But also, they're saying that they're heavy weighting in Chinese equities is to domestically orientated stocks so you know those that have a bigger weighting in China are heavily focused on those domestic stories.
1: Yeah I mean you've um, you've got so many domestic companies within China you haven't heard of serving a 1.4 billion market with decent market share domestically and indeed, you know, glo- globally that, that you're just not conscious of that are great. And the, the need to be bottom up, that's very much aligned with with Martin Lau in this area. And talk about sectors that Nisha mentioned, again, that's very, very much aligned. Property, actually, you know, Martin Lau, not a speculative investor, not going to be going into the raciest parts of the market, but did initiate small positions within within property in a country called China Overseas Grand Ocean I'd not heard of, trading it, you know, tiny p multiples two to three or whatever as a, as a, on account of how heavily bombed out also online education has been really heavily targeted so have used it as an opportunity to buy select small positions uh, within areas that they've got um really hit hard it's it definitely is a, it's a ch- changing landscape with, uh, with regards to investment in China, and you really are going to have to know what companies you're buying and holding. But you mentioned Tencent and JD. This sounds like he's investing in the normal themes that everyone else is. I think that's pretty much the extent of their Platform investment within China. Um, the dairy position had, didn't do quite so well actually uh, last year, but I think it's something that they maintain will be able to pass inflation on. That was one of the big reasons why it wasn't happening. And, and stocks which can pass inflation on, although inflation is obviously much less in China. Uh, obviously, they're reducing interest rates. Um, there, there are some supply side constraints which are, um, you know, forcing things upwards. Different structurally to what's going on over here in, in the West. Um, But yeah, I I genuinely think this is, you know, is a a manager really worth looking at. He's done sensible stuff like rotate away from the ADRs, the American Depository Receipts of of major companies like JD.com and CTO Express into the Hong Kong listings. Also got a nice buffer position of 30% in the A-share market. Now, while the MSCI China, which tracks these international listed companies, predominantly has fallen, the A-share market has been a lot more robust over 2020. It's only down, you know, like less less single digit percentage points over 2021 so it was really a good place to have it and had 30% there versus around say 10 to 15% in the MSCI China index uh, so um, a very sort of uh, thoughtful approach to investing in China and I think thoughtful is going to pay off long term
0: he puts his money where his mouth is I mean it's we're talking four billion dollars the size of this fund 50 stocks so uh, he's taking some chunky bets there, isn't he?
1: Chunky bets, but uh, I think I think that's probably a, f- a pretty reasonable portfolio size within China. I'm sorry yeah. that I don't I don't have a hand average number of holdings, but that sounds about right. You've, I mean, the first state mantra is really to know the company inside and out in order to avoid uh, any any potential ups as, as much as possible to mitigate against that risk. So they're not they're taking long term positions in yeah. companies that they feel comfortable.
0: Sorry, with. I wasn't trying to imply he was being reckless uh, <laughs> by any shape. I mean, I mean, you know, if if you want good alpha, you've, you've, you know, that's the classic formula, isn't it? Research your stocks to the nth degree and then put a decent amount of money in there rather than just, you know spreading stuff around so one stock doesn't make much difference
1: yeah definitely and one of the things he was getting lots of questions about from clients was you know are you going to get involved in the the ev space within china which is obviously produces large amounts of batteries they've got the largest producer in the world uh cattle produces 30 percent of the global ev batteries um, decided valuations in the competitive environment for a company like that from companies like LG Chemical were, and Samsung STI were just too tough. right? And they instead decided to invest in companies along the supply chain which had good competitive advantages, maybe not quite as exciting. There's a company called Hongfa Technology, produces electrical relays. A fifth of their revenue comes from EVs. Shenzhen Innovants produces controllers for electric vehicles. I'm not even sure what a controller is, probably should have done that research beforehand and myth group which produces the cases for batteries. There's just so many opportunities within China and the manufacturing front to tap into the big global trends which aren't going mm. away.
0: So it's the uh, it's the old don't buy the gold miners buy the pick and shovel makers. Yeah. <laughs> served <laughs> our great great grandparents well 150 years ago. Cool. Uh but I mean just before we wind up as you say an extraordinary range of of funds you said 16 and there's japan only in there and asia and china Uh, you know it takes takes a lot to and and i know he's got co-managers on some of those funds but uh, that is that is a tribute to his uh to his intellectual capital i guess that he can cope with all of that
1: yeah a serious undertaking and that he's as he's outperformed on average across all of them for such a long time Incredible, particularly his First Aid's process hasn't necessarily reaped the most rewards uh, at certain points in the cycle until recently uh, that he's managed to, with that high-quality growth focus, that he's managed to stay ahead of the index over most timeframes. Yeah, it's uh, impressive.
0: And, uh, and as you say, you know, consistently at you r rating, which which does reward people if they're across all these sectors, uh, but can, uh, can catch them out if one of those sectors... Uh, you know, they they fell down on, and it's uh, so yeah. That's a very interesting uh, and exciting uh, subject for the first of this new series. So thank you very much, Frank. And we got through the whole conversation about China without mentioning ESG.
1: I could have mentioned it. He has views on ESG, but
2: uh... <laughs> as for another
0: day, another day, Frank. Another day. You've just done it now, Angus. You've spoilt things.
1: His view was it's got, it's got, it's got a, long, a long way to go, yeah, and that aligns yeah. with what Nisha's been saying for quite some time on this space. But there's progress being made.
0: Good. Excellent. And talking of Nisha, Nisha will be leading things in a couple of weeks back with a new manager. So thank you, Frank. Thank you, Nisha. Thank you, Angus. And thank you for listening. Uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks, as I said, and we'll look forward to that. Bye-bye.